back and it's a blessing to see all of these different kind of gift sets being put to use to make sure that uh, something of God's word is going forth and that we're staying connected as uh, God's family. Um, a few announcements and then a little bit of prayer. First is we're trying to do a few membership classes. We know there's a handful of folks that uh, are interested in that and we're going to try to pre-record a few classes and then follow those up with uh, just some short Zoom meetings where we can kind of hash out any questions or concerns that folks may have in regard to those classes. Again, when it comes to membership classes, it doesn't make you a member necessarily, but it informs you as to what membership uh, is all about, particularly then from a biblical perspective. Also then, we have uh, a Christmas Eve service that we're going we're gonna to do. It's not exactly the traditional service that we've typically done. Uh, here, we're going to be doing it outside. We're going to kind of strip it down. We're going to have more or less a, a carol sing together. So if you're uh, around for Christmas Eve from 6 to roughly 7, 7.30, uh, come on out and we'll enjoy some, some worship together. So Christmas Eve night in the parking lot. Uh, wear your masks, maybe bring a chair and uh, we'll join in worship uh, together. Finally then, we're going to spend a little time of prayer, uh, praying for the businesses in this area, uh, especially during this season. Many small businesses are, are suffering and trying to figure out how to stay afloat, and so we just want to intercede for them. Also, the reconciliation of family relationships. Obviously, during a, a, a big, you know, a season like Christmas, we uh, are interacting with family a bit more. I know COVID gets in the way of that, but nonetheless, it brings up a lot of the, the hurt and the brokenness of the relationships that some have within their family units. And so we just want to pray into that, that this would be a time of redemption and reconciliation. And finally, we're going to pray for Wissanoming Bible Fellowship, which is right around the corner here on Van Kirk Street. We met with the pastor um, about a month ago. And so we just want to continue to pray for them. Uh, they, they're, as a smaller church, they're going through um, quite the struggles through this season. And so we want to intercede uh, for them that God would grant them wisdom in how to rightly glorify him um, through this season. So let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful um, that you have... Um, loved us in sending your son to die for us. Jesus, what all-sufficient merit um, you have granted to us. Thank you that your work and your obedience has perfectly fulfilled the law, and you've died to take on our sin, but you've died and been raised so that you might grant us something of your own righteousness. Thank you for that perfect standing that we have before the Father. And so, Lord, we now, based upon the love that you've shown us, how you've brought us into your family, we intercede for the small businesses in our area. God, we pray that you would give them something of added grace and provision during this season. We ask that you would grant them something of wisdom in order to know how to stay afloat, even just the practical stuff of of just daily business operations. We pray that you'd grant them something of wisdom during this season to see them last uh, through what has just been a, a difficult time. And God, we also pray for the reconciliation of family relationships as 
the holidays have now uh, come about and we are thinking about connecting with family and we're thinking about the relationships that we have with family. We pray that this season would be marked by something of the reconciliation mercy uh, that's only found in you to bring about uh, restoration. So uh, God, we pray that, that the touch points with family would be sweet, that it would uh, where things are broken, that there would be something of, of healing. Give, give grace to see forgiveness extend, to see love cover perhaps a multitude of sins, that there might be something of unity and reconciliation where perhaps there was once brokenness. And finally, Lord, we, we think of Wissanomic Bible Fellowship. God, we thank you for the light that they are in Wissanomic. We thank you for uh, the handful that regularly attend, but we pray that you would supply to them, even as we talked with the pastor, that you, you would supply to them perhaps younger couples with families uh, that would be an aid, uh, something of help to them as they seek to glorify you uh, within this neighborhood as well. So I pray that, again, you'd grant just that, that persevering grace uh, to the leaders of that congregation uh, we pray that they would persevere well during this time to see something of fruitfulness brought about for the sake of your kingdom. And so we, we ask your, your blessing upon them, and we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, we've covered the church in Ephesus, we've covered the church in Smyrna, and now we're looking to the church in Pergamum in verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, it states this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's a familiar idea in Scripture, presumably because it's an all-too-easy way to err as God's people. It's the idea of the disconnect, the disconnect between what we say and what we do, what we confess about Christ versus how we live for Christ. It's one thing to know about Jesus, even to confess Him as Lord and Savior, 
But it's an altogether different thing to see that truth, to see the one who is truth produce transformation in our hearts. Remember, all conduct, all the things that we do is an outworking of the heart. It's why Proverbs chapter 3, verse 23 would say, above all else, guard your heart. Why? Well, from it flows the course of, of life. It's why Jesus will say in the Gospels, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Your conduct is not first the result of external circumstances or influence. It's a result of the heart. It's all about what the heart wants, about what the heart then ultimately worships. And so herein is the issue often felt by God's people through the ages. It's the outward confession that's then attended with this inward compromise. You might be saying the right things, but your life is being lived in a way in which you're not practicing what you're preaching. It's a devastating disconnect. This is the problem in the church of Pergamum. An outward confession, but with inward compromise. But again, it's a familiar concept within Scripture, being seen in in the Exodus account, do you remember? Do you remember God's people saying, oh yeah, we confess our allegiance to Yahweh. And yet in the next chapter, what are they doing? Well, how about we create a golden calf and worship it? Their conduct was different than their confession. We see it in the time of the exile as well. We, the people of God are confessing Yahweh. We believe in Yahweh. We follow Yahweh. And yet what we find is that they fail to truly live according to God's standards involving the nations and their idolatry and how they live. Their confession did not match their conduct. And of course, this is still then a familiar concept in the New Testament. It's what we see in the book of Titus. It's what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's what we see in the book of Galatians. But now we see it here in the church of Pergamum. And let's not forget that what is being called out here, this disconnect between the confession and the conduct of God's people, what's being pointed out here has been written to all the churches. Once again, what Jesus is pointing out in the church of Pergamum is not to smear the integrity of the, of the church in Pergamum as these other churches would hear in to what's happening. It's rather to recognize that all of our hearts can be tempted in these ways, whether it's the seven churches represented in Revelation or whether it's the church today. Our hearts are easily tempted with this disconnect, this disconnect between our confession of Christ and our conduct for Christ. So the point this morning is simply this. Our conduct for Christ, how we live our lives for Christ, must align with our confession of Christ. Our conduct for Christ must align with our confession 
of Christ. Now again, we're going to follow this common sequence that we see as Jesus addresses the churches. He first commends the church. Here it's commending Pergamum for her outward confession. But then he will confront the church, calling out her inward compromise. And then finally he places a condition before the church of either repentance or judgment. So let's consider the first point, the commendation. In verse 12, Jesus declares to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was a stunning city. As the ancient writer uh, Pliny wrote, Pergamum was by far, he says, the most distinguished city in Asia. For one, it held a library of over 200,000 volumes, only second in size to the library in, the, in, in what is Alexandria. It was something like a, an Ivy League college town where many professors and scholars and students would have resided. It was known, the city of Pergamum, it was known for its academia. It was also known for its towering pagan temples that were dedicated to the likes of, of Zeus, whose temple was, was like this colonnade that resembled this massive throne, and it was sat upon the hill that overlooked Pergamum. So here is this, this temple that, that is above the, the, the city, and it resembles that of a throne. It's overshadowing the city. As you would look at Pergamum, you couldn't help but see this throne-like figure up upon the mount, this temple to Zeus. But whether it was academia, or whether it's pagan worship, it was also widely known, and mostly known, for being a political and patriotic hotspot for Rome. It was the original capital in Asia. It was the first city to build a temple dedicated to Caesar. And it was Pergamum who was the first to be given what was called the right of the sword. In other words, Pergamum had the right to execute any who would refuse to burn incense or declare lordship to the emperor of Rome. They had the right to execute. It was the right of the sword. And soon Pergamum would gain the name as being the temple warden. In other words, her political authority was not only known, but it was felt. She enforced the authority that she was given. This is where the church of Pergamum dwelt. And it's no wonder then that Jesus sends this message via the angel, remember, as a symbol of heavenly authority, who then introduces Jesus as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. While Pergamum may wield a Roman sword, while it might impose and kind of flex its judgment upon any who refuse to worship Caesar, it's Christ 
who holds something of a cosmic sort. He's the one who holds the ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. Rome, in all of its political sway, is actually not a power just unto themselves. They will bend the knee. They will be brought to account before Christ, him who has a sharp, two-edged sword. This would have been a world of comfort to the church in Pergamum. It's as if you can hear something of the comforting words of Jesus that he said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Who is it that carries the true sword of judgment? It's not Rome, right? It's the one who is dead and is alive again. It's the one who holds the keys, the authority over death and Hades. He has the right to wield the sword. He holds the true authority over all. And it's this ultimate authority which then frames out what is a remarkable commendation to the church in Pergamum. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne is a symbol of both the, the pagan throne of Zeus that overshadowed Pergamum, but also the political worship that threatened the very lives of the Christians in Pergamum. Should they refuse to align themselves with this pagan and political worship, it could cost their lives. And Jesus is saying, I know the hostility that you are living under. Jesus is saying, I know you dwell where Satan dwells. But remember, his knowing is not just mere awareness. Jesus is not saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm aware of what's happening and it's not good. No, there's more to this word that, of him knowing. Remember how he confronts Saul, the great persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus isn't merely aware of the persecution that is being taken. He is one with his church, and therefore he intimately knows the opposition and bears something of the burden of that opposition with his people. He knows where they dwell. He knows the hostility that they are under. And it's with that that he shares his glad commendation, verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. In other words, you've truly followed after me. You've not been ashamed of me, even at the risk of your own lives. Jesus honors then Antipas, who was who thought to have been roasted to death in a brass bowl. Jesus honors Antipas by giving him his own name from chapter 1, verse 5. 
faithful witness. It's like you can hear the heavenly echo from the, the parable of the steward. It's as if Jesus is saying, Antipas, well done, good and faithful servant. You stewarded your life well. Enter into the joy of your master. Folks, this is the way for the Christian. This is the way to joy. This is the way of joy. The joy of the master becomes the joy of the servant. And it's not a wasted life to suffer this way. It's not a wasted life to hold fast to the confession of Christ. He is life. Like the more recent martyr Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus commends the church of Pergamum, saying, well done. You didn't hold your life to yourself. No, you've held fast to the confession of Christ, even at the risk of your very life. That brings glad commendation from Christ. The question for us then is, can Christ commend us for living like that? I know, yeah, we don't necessarily suffer persecution in those similar ways, but it doesn't mean that we aren't to evaluate our lives and question whether or not we are living uh, our lives as a true sacrifice to Christ. One who holds to something of an unwavering confession of faith in Christ. Perhaps we could ask, are our lives all about earthly security and comfort? Or is it about how my life might hold fast to Christ? Or more specifically, is my goal in conversation with the lost to dodge any kind of religious talk for fear of how I might look or how they might respond? Or how about this? Do I view my bank account as something that merely serves my earthly security? Or is it something that I say, oh, I want to invest it in eternal purposes and reward? Is my instruction to and my dreams for my children? Is it all about living the best earthly life? That they would get a fair shake at things, that they would be established upon this earth, that they would find something of security and comfort in this world? Or is it that you want to train your children that their life is something to be given away for the sake of Christ? Jesus says, I know where you dwell. <laughs> He's not saying, oh, I, know, I, I knew you were living in that city, but you've moved now to the hill country to be safe. You know, with all, with all the paganism and all the corruption, I've seen that you've moved away to a secure place, good for you. No, he, he says, you've stayed. You've given yourself to that context, holding fast to your confession, knowing that it could cost your very life. This is what he commends. The question for us 
is do we truly see our lives as a living sacrifice, something to be lost for the sake of Christ? Are you a living sacrifice? Can Christ commend how your life is being lived? A life that clearly, boldly confesses Christ. Now second, Christ confronts the church of Pergamum. He states in verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And right there we have to stop and it's like, who is this Balaam figure? Well, we have to go all the way back to Numbers chapter 22 through 24. It's where God's people have have been taken out of Egypt. They're now wandering through the wilderness and they're crossing the land of Moab. And it's at this time that the king of Moab, named Balak, becomes fearful of God's people. He sees that they're of such a big number that he's fearful that they are going to attack Moab and overcome them. So what does Balak do? Well, he gets a hold of Balaam. Balaam is a pagan sorcerer who is known for speaking over others and seeing those very things come to pass. And so Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam, the sorcerer, to curse God's people. So Balaam agrees to this, but then is confronted by the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ who confronts Balaam, and what is he holding? He's holding a sword. Balaam is unable to pronounce curses on God's people because of this confrontation. Rather, he can't help but proclaim blessing upon God's people rather than curses upon God's people. He even, in his blessing, prophesies the coming of a king who will be a blessing to the nations. But what is interesting is that by Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, and as we see here in verse 15, Balaam couldn't curse God's people. So he did something much more subtle, much more insidious. He told Balak, the king of Moab, to send Moabite woman, women to God's people who would then lead God's people into sexual immorality and idolatry. And so that's exactly what Balak did. In other words, it was a backdoor strategy. It was subtle, it was insidious, but it got God's people to compromise their faith. It worked. God had to judge his people. 24,000 Israelites died for giving in to this idolatry, this sexual immorality, this compromise. Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, something of the same subtle backdoor stuff is happening within this church. It might be boldly holding on to their confession of Christ outwardly, but inwardly there's this subtle backdoor compromise which is taking place. As verse 14 says, some are eating food offered to idols and practicing sexual immorality. The idea is that they are literally involving themselves in pagan worship. Most likely, they're doing this with the logic 
that they were to keep face politically and socially with their peers. They figured it wasn't a big deal since they really didn't believe in those deities or in the emperor. They believed in Christ. But this, in fact, is what Christ calls a stumbling block. It's this very logic that leads to compromise, that I can have a confession of Christ, but then I can compromise my conduct for him. What this does is it leads to a false witness. What it does is it leads to a mixed message of Jesus. You can't confess Christ but not live for Christ. It's a perverted witness, and it presents an altogether different Jesus. Now, this was similar action and similar logic with the Nicolaitans, referenced in verse 15. In the early church writing, Nicholas was said to be one of the deacons chosen in Acts 6, but he falls away from the faith and then sought to confuse others with that same kind of logic. Oh, it doesn't matter how you live as long as you just believe Jesus. As long as your confession is good, your conduct doesn't matter. But here's the point, Christian. Following Jesus doesn't mean the absence of law. It actually, rather, demands a higher form of the law. Christ's grace and mercy isn't an excuse to neglect the law, as we saw in Romans 6. No, His grace and mercy to us demands our conformity to God's law. Following Jesus doesn't mean the absence of law. Now, let me explain the law just for a moment to give some clarity to us. God gave his people the law in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 and 18, will say that he came to fulfill the Old Testament law, which means that he satisfied it perfectly in ways that God's people, you and I, could never fulfill it. And this is, as we know, the beauty of the gospel. It is the good news. In the cross, Christ takes upon himself our guilt, but then offers something of his positional perfection before God. Just as we sang earlier, by thine all-sufficient merit, he has, his perfect obedience has been given to us. It's the great exchange of the gospel that Jesus perfectly satisfied. He fulfilled the Old Testament law. He walked in perfect obedience and going to the cross, he takes upon himself our demerit and he gives us his merit. We stand before God in the righteousness, in the obedience of Christ. Another way to say it is he takes our rap sheet and we get his rap sheet, which is perfect obedience. We stand before God in Christ's obedience, not in our own. Now, Jesus fulfills the law in that sense. He perfectly obeyed it. But Jesus also then fulfills different aspects of the Old Testament law 
For instance, the sacrificial system. We no longer have a sacrificial system. Why? Because Jesus became the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We no longer have temple proceedings. Why? Well, because he becomes the better high priest for us. He makes us a temple, the temple of his presence. He also becomes the, the perfect Israel, right? such that there's no longer any kind of civil law that now is bearing upon us because he's become the perfect Israel for us. But the moral aspects of the Old Testament law remain. They remain, and yet in Christ, it's altogether heightened in its form. So, for instance, Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you have lust in your heart, well, you're guilty of idolatry or adultery. It's not fundamentally a law of external conformity as it is now in Christ, a standard of the heart. Remember, all of life, all of what we do flows from the heart, and therein not only do we receive the positional obedience of Christ before the Father, but His Spirit dwells in us to convict us, to challenge us, to enable us to think, to desire, to worship Christ from the inside out. And all of this is so that our conduct for Christ actually aligns with our confession of Christ. Following Jesus does not mean the absence of law. It actually binds us to an heightened law, a law of the heart. Is this the way, then, that you consider your relationship with Christ? That there is a holiness to be learned. There is a conduct of the heart to grow in. Is this how you understand even our gatherings as a church? Or the need for gathering as the church? As a way to guard our hearts against the subtle compromises that, that, that the enemy oftentimes works through the back door. It's the way, as Hebrews 3 says, that we should exhort one another every day so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do we jump on Zoom? I don't prefer Zoom at all. I don't prefer being at a distance from you. But why do we try to stay connected with one another during this season? Because there are subtle compromises that can so easily distract us from the law of Christ. But there's grace, there's mercy that Christ intends to supply to us so that our conduct for Christ might match our confession of Christ. So it's this failure, this failure to acknowledge Christ's law that actually leads to this subtle but grievous compromise in the church of Pergamum. And it therefore warranted this confrontation from Christ himself. Based upon the seriousness of that compromise, finally Jesus presents the church of Pergamum with a condition. He states, verse 16, Therefore repent 
And if not, I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. The condition is this. You can either repent or face judgment. Repentance here most likely has in view both the repentance of those who are actively involved in this pagan worship, but also the repentance of the whole church who is failing in some sense to exercise what we would refer to as church discipline. Remember, church discipline is not for the sake of being harsh with people. Rather, it's a way we keep one another accountable. It's an act of love. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of rescue. But should the church then fail to repent in these two ways, Jesus says, I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. Remember, he's drawing from the imagery of the sharp two-edged sword that we will soon see in Revelation chapter 19 as a sword of judgment that comes out of the mouth of Messiah This sword symbolizes something of Judgment Day where all is brought to account. But here, Judgment Day is not in view. What's in view is something of discipline that's brought upon the church. Just as the 24,000 died in that one occasion of sexual immorality and pagan worship in the Exodus account, so even in the New Testament church, we see different times where Jesus does Just that, he brings judgment upon his church. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira will be struck dead for lying to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will tell the church that God has brought sickness and even death upon them because they are taking communion in an unworthy manner. James 5 will talk about unconfessed sin that is causing physical sickness among God's people. It's judgment. It's not final judgment, but it is stern discipline that Christ is bringing upon his church to actually keep them from final judgment. Just to say it abruptly, you're not safe in your sin. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we are not safe in our sin. It's not a wrong thing that Christ would warn us in these ways. Folks, he will go to war with you for the sake of your eternal joy in him. He will contend with you so that you will appropriate his grace and mercy. He will judge you so that you prove to be his own. He is good to go to war with us. Now, finally, should the church repent, there's a promise given. In verse 17, we have what is becoming a familiar statement with each of these churches. Jesus states, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the promise to the repentant church, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
what exactly is being promised? Well, first we have to realize that the road of victory is a road marked by repentance. The one who overcomes is one who repents, not just at salvation, but one who makes a, 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 a regular rhythm of his life to repent, to turn to Christ, to again and again be, be one who is circumspect, who's considering his heart and the desires of his heart. And when things are off, he's bringing that to Jesus. He's bringing it to the light and say, Jesus, I see my sin. Come forgive me and transform my heart by you your grace and mercy. Put your law to work in my heart. This is the way, this is the road of victory. This is the way to overcome. This is how you conquer. It's repentance. And this repentance is coupled with the promise of hidden manna and a white stone, which is strange, I know. But manna, of course, was the supernatural supply that God gave to his people in the wilderness wanderings. And it becomes symbolic, of course, for our spiritual nourishment that Christ uh, becomes for his people. He is the bread of life. He is the true nourishment for our souls. There is nothing that will satisfy your soul but Christ. Nothing that this world can offer can satisfy the depths of your soul. Only Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the manna we need. The road of repentance will therefore be marked by true soul satisfaction in Christ. You will be granted manna. You will be granted soul satisfaction in Jesus. But then there's this white stone that is promised. And there's a variety of views on what this is, but most likely it refers to a banquet invitation. Uh, in this time, they would give white stones to invited guests with their names on them as something of a right of entry into the banquet. And so Jesus is saying that the road of repentance is the road of acceptance into a banquet in which we will be given a new name, a new mark, a new status. Now, as we know, as we'll see as we go through the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, there is a banquet, the marriage feast of the Lamb, in which the church will finally and fully be realized in her status as Christ's bride. This is the promise that's handed out to us. It's the white stone. It's the invitation of acceptance. It's in the invitation into the realization of who we truly are in Christ. But it's the road of repentance that leads to that day, that leads to the fullness of that status. Repentance or judgment? This is the condition that Christ places before his compromising church. So, is there a disconnect between what we say and how we live? While we might confess Christ, are there subtle, perhaps even private 
compromises at work within our hearts and within our lives? Are we given to applying the law of Christ to our lives? Are we given to growing in that spiritual maturity from the inside out, from the inner workings of the heart to the outer confession of our faith? Folks, we have a saving judge, one who holds something of a cosmic sword, who readily protects his people even through persecution unto death, but will, who will go to war with his people. Also that the witness of his church might be clearly known, that her conduct for Christ might align with her confession of Christ. May Christ be known through this church. Let's pray. Father, we, we perhaps are startled with such language. We love to think of Jesus as that pure, spotless lamb who is gentle with us, who is careful with us, who doesn't impose himself upon us. And we are grateful, we are grateful for that. And yet, Lord, help us not to lose sight of the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword who holds authority over heaven and earth, who is not afraid to go to war with his people so that he might win their affection, so that he might transform them and secure them ultimately to himself. God, I pray that where sin might abound in our lives, perhaps even in the most subtle of ways, where compromise is alive and well, where the enemy is coming kind of through the back door, we pray that you would shine your light upon our compromise. I pray that you would give us something of a holy trembling before the one who holds that sharp two-edged sword. And God, would it be that the one who holds the sword, that we, would, that we would fear, we would tremble, but that we would run to the very one who is the slain lamb, who comforts us, who is ready to forgive us, who is ready to restore us, who is ready to give us something of the very joy that he alone can supply. So shine your light upon us, we pray. God, I, I pray specifically um, for this issue of sexual immorality. How easy it is for our eyes to be captivated with that which cannot satisfy, but how subtle a second glance, how subtle it is to catch a picture scrolling through a phone, 
how easy it is for our hearts to be taken. Subtle compromise. Where we find our heart then reeling with lust and desire that does not honor you. Jesus, thank you that you are for us enough to say that that kind of sin is not safe. Jesus, we thank you that when we turn to you in repentance, there is grace and mercy to be known. There is transformation, there is power for restoration to be brought to our hearts and lives. Thank you that our sin is not safe with you, but oh, there is grace, there is mercy to be found with you. So we thank you for it. Ask that you would expose the compromise of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does it fit?